Hello and welcome to On The Soul's Terms podcast. This episode is releasing on the 20th of January, that's a Friday, and releasing into the Aquarius new moon at the start of 2023. And that moon is at one degree of Aquarius, so at the very, very, very beginning. And uh, as such, I thought it'd be a good episode to have a look at some of those Aquarian themes some of the stories and myths behind Aquarius and uh, and just let ourselves dream a little into this sign. Last time we went into Capricorn and you can go back and have a listen to that one if you like. We explored the stories of Prometheus and Epimetheus, went into a few things about Saturn and Capricorn and since releasing that episode I've actually thought a little bit more about Capricorn, the fact that it's an earth sign, the fact that it's a uh, it's a cardinal earth sign and its opposition to cancer. And I was thinking about earth as a feminine um, element traditionally, the two feminine elements being water and earth and the two masculine elements being air and fire. And I started to really ponder if Capricorn is not, in fact, the sign of the mother which might be a little bit controversial, but it led me into thinking about Saturn also as a feminine um, or having a feminine side to it and Saturn in Capricorn or Saturn and Capricorn both being this feminine, more mother archetype. And so the um, Capricorn cancer axis being something to do with mother-daughter, which takes us into the next one of Aquarius and Leo, um, which is the opposition there, perhaps having something to do with father and son. So plant that little seed as we go in here, and who knows if that seed will grow or just wither out. We'll find out as we go. So yes, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to this episode. I'm looking forward to doing some dreaming with you guys. Um, so I thought I'd start uh, with a little bit of an astrology section here. I know that not all of my listeners um, uh, clued into the astrological language. So I'll keep the language around the astrology as simple as I can. Um, I'll also, of course, attempt to keep the uh, Greek mythology as simplified as I can. But that said, you know, in, in, uh, in the sentiment that Jason Holly, uh, a previous guest on the podcast, puts forward, you know, his, his, uh, his mission is to complexify astrology and also also to complexify psyche and soul um it's a it's a concept that i i really enjoy because we're we we seem to always try try to get down to brevity and try to get down to like okay so what is it tell me exactly what it is and um and give me the key words you know give me the give me just give it to me in a in a few bite-sized um morsels and then i'll be able to digest it easily um Rather than that, what we're going to do is just open up the dreaming mind and get into some of these stories. And as we go through, we can we can ponder and we can imagine and we can let our imagination really just wander around in these stories. For me, that's what the Greek that's what Greek mythology is. It's almost like a uh, a collective dreaming process. And in that collective dreaming, there's all sorts of collective themes that emerge, and it's almost like the poets. And the storytellers and the seers back then were really trying to to cover every experience imaginable, no matter how horrific or grotesque or beautiful and otherworldly. And as such, what they left behind was this this scaffolding in which we could all um, take our experiences and our, our humanness and reflect into that that Greek mythic um, landscape and see if there are resonances with our own experiences and with those that the Greeks put forward. You know, as a, as a simple example, we have this idea of Saturn um, swallowing his children. And our literal minds might think, oh my God, that's disgusting and terrible and terrifying and horrible. But our mythological minds might be able to just sit with that for a second and, and think about what is it to swallow one's children is it to swallow our creativity? 
Is it to swallow our original voice and our individuality? Is it to swallow our emotions and to push them down or to swallow some experiences that we really didn't like and would rather not have and to push them down and compartmentalize them? You know, so so it gives us this this opportunity to ponder, well, where have I done that and where am I doing that? Um, and then when we think about how that resolves, where Zeus and, and his mentor Metis, the Oceanid, uh, make up this potion and bring it to Saturn and somehow slip it into his drink, he, his belly rumbles and he throws up those, um, those five figures that he had swallowed, those five gods and goddesses. He throws them back up. Um, and so we can perhaps feel where that we need to be with Zeus here and we need to be with Metis and also feeling into that where, where we might be able to release, um, almost like a cathartic experience of releasing those children, releasing our creativity, releasing our emotions, releasing our experiences and trusting that they'll be fine in the world. We don't need to swallow them down whole. So that's a little, just a little um, nudge towards why this project of On the Soul's Terms, especially these solo podcasts are happening in the first place. What am I trying to achieve here um, by doing this? And ultimately, I'm, I'm trying to give us a, a bit of a landscape in which to re-aliven and reawaken, reawaken and reanimate our, our imaginations, actually. And being able to work with the psyche through the imagination with the help of mythology, with the help of astrology, and thus with the help of psychology, which is just intrinsically linked to those two. So I do thank you for coming along on the journey with me, um, for trusting me as your storyteller and guide and and Hermes figure. As I wander with you through these images and um, and as things come up, I just... We'll comment on them and and um, and and reflect and and that's been the process. It's been actually very enjoyable to get back into the storytelling, to get back into these solo ones. Um, so thank you for the support of all those that reached out that were excited to to hear the stories are back. Um, also, special thanks for the uh, the new patrons that have signed up this week or within the last two weeks. It's so good to have you guys as part of the show. Um, thank you so much for the support. We've actually almost doubled the number of patrons in the last couple of weeks. So I'd really love to see that number keep going up because it just helps to get a little bit back. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money and time and energy and effort that goes into these shows. And I really, I don't advertise. There's no, there's no money coming in for this apart from what the patrons so generously decide to give. Uh, so thank you again to all of those patrons. It's so appreciated. Thanks for being on the ride. Patrons also get a few bonuses and a few different things to ponder, a few images to have a look at, the occasional audio that will come through. Um, and, yeah, I'm hoping that it will continue to grow and be a thriving little community there. If you would like to join up, you know where to go, patreon.com slash terms, and you'll find me there. So let's start this episode by having a look at the moon. Um, we have this new moon. That's the moment that the sun and moon come together in the sky. So you won't be able to see the new moon because it's the dark moon. And so it's a time with all this potential, you know, it's like it hasn't actually started yet. It's just the old, the old cycle is completing and the new cycle is just about to happen. And so what I'd love to do is just have a, have a brief look at some of the themes that we're seeing over there on the, uh, on the astrology side of things. Now, this, this new moon is at one degree, one degree out of 30. So that's in the very, very early phase of Aquarius. And it's right near the planet Pluto that is now at 28 degrees of Capricorn. So we can feel how we're, how we're living on the cusp here. We're living in between. We're living in between Capricorn and Aquarius right at this moment. Um, and particularly that's because Pluto is really finishing up its time in Capricorn that started all the way back in 2008. So Pluto, the god of destruction, god of the underworld, uh, the cosmic truth serum, which came into Capricorn in 2008 in that time where 
those four big banks that were too big to fail suddenly were about to collapse and the housing crisis, the mortgage crisis in the United States, and then that's suddenly triggering this global financial crisis. All of these very um, Capricornian themes uh, and Pluto just really revealing the um, revealing what was going on underneath the surface. And so Pluto now is in just that very last phase of his time in Capricorn. And we get into this Aquarius new moon, and it just happens that Pluto is getting ready. His bags are packed, and he's getting ready to exit Capricorn and enter Aquarius, which is quite exciting. He's actually going to take 18 months to get into Aquarius. He'll go in once, then he'll come back out and go in and come back out and go in. He's going to have five times where he ingresses and comes back out. Um, So one, two, three, four, five... And then it'll be an 18-month process. And then in late 2024, he will um, be fully settled into Aquarius. So this is quite an exciting time, actually. I don't think there'll be some people um, sounding the alarms. But to be honest, I've heard enough alarms, (laughs) maybe to last my lifetime over the last few years. And instead of some crazy alarmist idea, I I just think it's, it's more about what will Pluto reveal in the realm of Aquarius. And so you might be asking, well, what is the realm of Aquarius? Well, that's what we'll be getting into today. We'll be doing a deep dive on Aquarius. Aquarius is mythology. It's stories. It's two rulers, which is Uranus and Saturn, and um, and digging deep. So the only thing that I'll, I'll mention, there's a few other things going on in, uh, in the chart today, but I won't mention them all. Um, but one thing to mention is that Mercury is now going direct and Mars, that spent a few months there, um, retrograde is now also direct. So we just we can see that energy of the mind and the and the and the will starting to go forward again. But um, don't get ahead of ourselves. Don't sort of fall over our skis here. Uh, I would say just letting it slowly, letting the momentum slowly build after this more kind of introspective, introverted time. Even though we've had Christmas and New Year's and everything, it's been more of a a slow kind of pondering time, a chance to go backwards, um, which is like our friend Epimetheus, kind of a a chance to regress and to look back. And now things are going to start speeding up again, but let's stay kind of, you know, a bit like our North Node, our collective North Node in Taurus. Let's uh, slow down to speed up as we go. So just really making sure that we're taking our time with this, not getting ahead and um yeah staying in staying in the rhythm so that is just a brief look at what's going on in the stars and yeah the only other thing i'll say is that uh that saturn has been in aquarius for um a couple of years now and is going to be leaving in march in early march and then Pluto will be going into Aquarius, so it's sort of like Saturn leaves stage right and um, and Pluto enters stage left, um, and that's what we'll be seeing. It's also very interesting to think about this one degree of Aquarius because um, at the end of 2020, Jupiter and Saturn got together at zero degrees of Aquarius, so quite close to where this new moon is, um, and that was this new 20-year cycle and also a new 200-year cycle. Um, of moving into the air signs uh, so you know on a, on a, as we zoom out and see more of the collective themes we're just kind of reckoning with with the air signs and having a having a ponder into that because that's what's going to be getting shaken up over the next few years um, the air is is well what is what is the element of air the air is the mind and the intellect and thoughts and speech, um, anything that can float up and float away. Uh, airiness can be light and, and free and fun, but airiness can also sort of get detached and, and be dissociated, and all of those are, are part of the air experience. So we'll be exploring that um, today. And I thought I'd start with a story, um, the story behind the constellation of Aquarius, I want to give a special shout out here again to Jason Holly, who's he's just become someone that I've I've learned so much from uh, through all of his offerings, and 
you know, he's got this amazing series over on Astrology University that I'd recommend anybody going over to. You can get there on his website, jasonholly.net. And he does these epic deep dives into all of the different signs. Yeah, in a way, I'm, I'm following that lead and, uh, and getting into those stories and others that are around it as well. So the story that links to Aquarius is the story of Ganymede. And the story of Ganymede actually comes from uh, the Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite, which is very interesting. We're going to be getting more into Aphrodite as we go along because she has all these links to Uranus and to, to Aquarius in, in ways that I hadn't really seen before doing this deep dive into Aquarius. Uh, so we'll be getting into her a little bit more. But Ganymede, so Ganymede was a youth, a beautiful youth that was the Prince of Troy. Now, Aphrodite really speaks very highly of the Trojans in her myth, in her hymn, the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. She says they're, they're the closest to the gods um, of all of the different races that were known in that world at that time. In fact, so much so that she uh, gets tricked into sleeping with a mortal Trojan, which she's very ashamed of afterwards. It's a spell that Zeus puts on her, and, and she gets very ashamed of that afterwards, and it kind of destroys all sorts of things. Um, but it's the only time, you know, she's normally putting the spells on the humans and the gods, um, and it's the only time she gets tricked uh, by Zeus. Yeah, so she goes on to tell the story of Ganymede. Now, Ganymede is this beautiful youth, kind of perfect. He's the prince of Troy, and he's the son of Tros, who's the king of Troy. One day, Ganymede takes Zeus's fancy. Zeus, who is Jupiter in the Roman, takes Zeus's fancy and he, and he sees this boy and he's suddenly struck by Eros. It's like the arrow of Eros pierces his heart and this young male, it's all that he can think of. And so he sends down an eagle, the eagle named the Aquila, who comes down and snatches Ganymede and takes him up to heaven. And there's another version of the story where it's a hurricane or a sort of tornado that comes down and just sweeps up Ganymede and just whisks him off to heaven. This is actually not so uncommon in Greece that there's forms of wind like the Zephyr and other other cloud-like um, beings that can take you off to, to different dimensions. So Ganymede is, is whisked up to heaven, um, up to the top of Mount Olympus, and... It's not entirely clear what happens here. It's really left up to our imagination. Is it, is it a rape of Ganymede? Or is it a, a hot, steaming love affair between Zeus and Ganymede? Or is it just that he wants him around to, um, so that everybody can marvel at his beauty? It's not actually stated outright. Um, so I'll leave you as the audience to think about what exactly happened between Zeus and Ganymede there. Um, but Zeus decides that Ganymede should pour wine for the gods, and therefore he becomes the cupbearer. Just so happens, though, that there was already a cupbearer at the time, and her name was Hebe, and she's the daughter of Hera, um, one of Hera's favorites. And so here comes Zeus, and he just he just replaces Hebe. Obviously, he doesn't talk to Hera about that and see what her thoughts might be. He just replaces her with uh, with Ganymede. And, you know, it's kind of a funny story because it's just like, oh, and everybody just rejoiced at the, uh, at the beauty of Ganymede. And Ganymede was pretty happy with it too, apparently. And we know for sure that Hera would not have been happy with this at all. We know for sure that Hebe wouldn't have been happy with this. And what about Ganymede here? You know, he's, he's now an eternal youth. And there's certainly something about that 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 we would love to be all of us kind of would probably love to be eternally young and youthful but uh in some ways he's a bit of a slave he's just pouring wine you know maybe what watching all the gods get a bit boozed and drunk and <laughs> so it's an interesting one maybe it also um brings us to dionysus the, the god of wine and and the connection between the the pourer of the wine and, and dionysus i'm not sure but yeah we get the sense of of Ganymede now this is his fate he's going to be having this one job for the rest of eternity um, and meanwhile down on earth Tros uh, 
comes to find his son and he can't find him anywhere and he gets very distraught um and then zeus sends hermes down with a gift and hermes brings down these two magical horses horses of the gods they can walk on water they can do all sorts of magical things i'll leave i'll leave your imagination to fill out the rest maybe they can fly in your story or run super fast or you know beautiful um divine horses um so hermes gives them gives uh trust these horses and then just has a word to him and says listen ganymede's fine he's up in heaven he's having a great time he's now going to be an eternal youth he'll, he'll never be ravaged by old age and you know he'll never have to go through all of that um so so don't worry about him and the next line is and so and so Tros was happy <laughs> It's a very interesting story, especially when you put it next to, um, say, the story of Persephone and Demeter, which I brought out on the podcast in an earlier episode. And think about Demeter's journey. There's an entire hymn uh, dedicated to Demeter and as the as the Earth Mother and her entire journey of having to you know go through the phases of grief and to and the rage and and the angst and the trouble that she goes through and meanwhile tros is just like oh cool oh that's great got these horses now i'm sure my son's going to be fine <laughs> so it's an interesting one and it may give us a bit of a, a um parts of the story it may give us a a few insights into what aquarian energy is is about you know the positive and the negative um, of course, when we think of this this fixed air sign of Aquarius, the eleventh sign of the zodiac, so it's the it's the penultimate sign, it's the second to last sign. Um, it's the last sign of all the air signs, and so we go into the Gemini process of of experimenting and playing and, and you know trying things out. We take that into the Libra po- process of of weighing and trying to. Um, really weigh up what what's right and what's wrong what works and what doesn't and then we create systems out of those thoughts through the process of aquarius so in some ways aquarius being the final air sign uh is has a has an attach has has a detachment a certain um area area attachment to it it's not so caught up in things you know it's not it's not really into the drama of life um, it's just more into the facts and the figures and like, let's just make sense of things and let's get the, the most logical outcome here and, and me- let's, let's make things make sense. You know, that's Aquarius's style. It's opposite Leo. So it's attempting to, to really create a, that detachment from the emotional world in order to get the, the clear information. But of course, as we know, nothing really uh, separates out from its opposite. They're always in it together. And um, and so we can see this very sort of erotic, almost Leo-like thing where, uh, where, where Zeus just suddenly is just enraptured by uh, Ganymede and he can't help himself and he goes down and picks him up and takes him up to heaven. Um, this very romantic scene. But then we also get the sense of a of this with this hurricane or this eagle like an abduction, um, almost like we we fly up. Now this is one of the themes here of flying up into the mind, flying up into the intellect, and um, and in, in its extreme, we can see a sense of a dissociation or or getting split off from the body and the body's process, and this is something that with people with um, strong Aquarius or planets in Aquarius might be able to reflect on here and, and perhaps even attest to the, the sense of being taken up and out of the experience. Perhaps the story gives us a sense of that dissociation as well because Tros apparently is happy, but what's he really going through? Is he, has he just sort of cut himself off from his emotional body in order to get through this experience, which is often also something that we do in um in times of trauma and extreme states and extreme experiences we can cut ourselves off so in the end we get this sense of father and son being being split off from each other and you know as i said at the beginning of the podcast i am wondering at the moment if if the aquarius leo axis might be about the father and son whilst the capricorn cancer axis might be about mother and daughter it's something that is quite fresh in my thinking. I'm looking around to have a look to see if any anyone else is talking about that. 
being a thing. But then you would have this um, this mother, daughter, father, son, and then you can connect it through the cross with um, with Capricorn, Leo, and Aquarius, Cancer, as the other connectors of like mother, son, and father, daughter. And because those would be quincunxes, 150 degrees, there wouldn't be such a charge between them. There'd be a bit more of a live and let liveness to the um, to the mother son and the and the father daughter relationship. It would be uh, less kind of frontal, less full on. But anyway, that's just something that I'm thinking about there. So Ganymede is taken away, and um, and that's where we end that story. Um, Aphrodite then goes on um, just. Just after that part, she goes on to tell the story of Eos, which is a name that means the dawn. So Eos was the goddess of the dawn. She was the sister of Helios, which of course means the sun, and Selena, which of course means the moon. And Eos was the third. Um, and she would come out just before uh, the sun chariot would come out. So Eos was like a celebration of that early morning light, um, but it's fleeting right that that um that time in the early morning at dawn where the sky if uh you know if you if you're fortunate enough to be in a place where you can really take it in is that it's it's most beautiful and most pink and it's it's not surprising that um that aphrodite would tell a story aphrodite is the goddess of of love and beauty it's not surprising that she would tell a story about eos the goddess of dawn because it is a a spectacular amount of beauty that comes out at those times of the day. So Eos had had a series of um, love affairs, fleeting love affairs that never lasted. You can imagine the dawn. <laughs> the dawn energy would have this love that never lasts, right? Like it always moves on into the next thing. It's in the twilight after all. And so she falls in love again with a mortal named Tithonus. And Tithonus is um is of extraordinary beauty so eos goes up to zeus and asks for a boon and she asks that tithonus might be immortal that he might live forever and zeus gives his nod says sure no problem so eos walks away from this a little bit uh you know she's happy but she's like oh that was a little easier than i had anticipated and she goes back to Earth, and she's living out her life in this eternal youth, with uh, with Tithonus and Eos is an, is an eternal, so she's never going to get old, and she's rejoicing in this. And one day she sees this gray hair, and she's like, "Oh my God!" And she runs back to Zeus and says, "Zeus, what is going on here with this gray hair? You know, you said that he'd be immortal." And um, and Zeus Zeus says back. You only asked that he would live forever. You didn't ask that he would be an eternal youth. So yeah, as as Tithonus gets older and older and older, he just can't die, and he just gets older and older and and uh, and withers away. And eventually, Eos just sort of locks him into this room. And if you get the the more um, overt description of this, uh, she eventually turns him into a grasshopper. And he, because of all these noises that he was making when he was extremely old. If you get the more uh, Greek tragedy version, she she just locks locks the door behind her, and he just remains in this room. It's a pretty shocking story, right? I mean, it's a pretty uh, terrifying thing, and I like that that's what the Greeks were able to do to to sort of lay out these situations of like, do we really want to live forever? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or do we really want sort of, you know, the impossibility of eternal youth? And and it kind of takes me back, in a sense, to Ganymede, this, who, who's granted eternal youth, right? And and maybe this part of the, the consciousness, like the heavenly part of the consciousness. And, it, and so what does this mean for the archetype of Aquarius? Maybe that there's a part of Aquarius that is also an eternal youth, that is into the lofty ideals of the heavens. And perhaps even... You know, it's that that can take us into the two rulers of a of Aquarius because the old ruler was Saturn or Cronus, who we've discussed quite a bit on the podcast, and the new ruler is Uranus, 
who we discussed a little bit last time as well. And um, so maybe we have this kind of more Uranian part, that, that the eternal youth part and the Saturnian part that can accept the, um, the realities of life on Earth. And just in our, our story of Ganymede and his abduction, we see this split between the two, that the father is left behind and he will grow old and he will die, but the son remains an eternal youth. The Jungians uh, speak extensively about the idea of the puer eternus, who is the eternal youth, and the senex, who is the old man. And in some ways, both of those um, figures are represented in the sign of Aquarius. So yeah, what does this mean for Aquarius? I mean, I see Aquarius as a revolutionary energy and a, um, a change maker and a change agent and wanting to change and wanting to um, wanting to revolt against the old ways and to find ways to become to to renew things and to to bring back vigor and to and you see a lot of the eternal youth element in that um, the sense of of overthrowing oppressive systems and um, you know standing up for humanity and it is a sign that that is a humanitarian sign and it's a sign about being progressive and going forward and and um, you know creating new systems and and shutting and and closing down the old systems and and all of these things I mean we think about that most famous Aquarius song this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius and that that being a song that came in in the 60s, which was a very Aquarian moment in time. A lot of hope in the air, a lot of a lot of expression and a lot of individuality and people coming, you know, coming out and challenging, challenging the system. You know, but it's also interesting that the other side of Aquarius is Saturn and how often even even the element of um, that rules Uranus is uranium um, and uranium over time will become lead. And so that's interesting that the that the that this revolutionary energy once it gets in charge eventually becomes that energy of the system. So the one who overthrows the system becomes the system. It's always something to work work to look out for there. I think Brian Clark said it on my podcast once that those who tore down the wall become the wall, as his way of saying that. But yeah, that's um, that's some of the elements of Aquarius. But perhaps in this myth, we're hearing just a few more sort of components. Um, you know, I'll, I'll go a little deeper into this as we go, as we pick up the characters of Uranus, and we pick up particularly the character of Aphrodite, aka Venus. And um, I didn't mention it in the astrology report, but today um, Venus is is conjunct Saturn in Aquarius. So, you know, we, uh, we it's a good time to speak into that into that um, Venus and Aquarius, Uranus versus Saturn, all of these kinds of things. Let's now move on um, away from Ganymede. We'll leave him pouring wine for the gods up the top there, up on Mount Olympus, and hope that he's happy and enjoying his time there. And we'll leave also Tros, who is um, riding his horses and, and seems pretty happy and, um, you know, like no big deal that his son got uh, abducted and taken into the upper world. We'll also leave Eos and, and the dawn and the and the pretty uh, the pretty pink lights that she brings forward, and we'll leave Tithonus and Tithonus, and uh, we'll hope that he is. Um, we'll, we'll imagine him uh, as a as a grasshopper, and maybe the start of the race of grasshoppers. And it's a beautiful animal. I don't really want to think of him behind that steel door there. Um, that doesn't sound too good at all. But it does make me think of, of death as mercy uh, rather than something that we should be fearing and worried about so intensely in this Western world. Anyway, coming back to a story. So last time I went through the creation myth and, um, and we started with the relationship between Gaia and Uranus and then we went through there kind of speedily. We went through a big, we went through the whole sort of creation myth trying to get to that point where it's Prometheus and Epimetheus, because that was the point I really wanted to focus on in that podcast, which you can go back and have a listen to. But for this one, um, we're going to actually look at this uh, it at the very, very, very beginning, at the very, very start of it all, and spend a little time just, just there, hanging out there. It's often a time that gets rushed over so that we can get to the more epic 
battles and things and the clash of the titans and all those exciting things in those stories um but in the beginning was well in the beginning was chaos and chaos gave gave birth to um to five different elements and one of those elements was gaia the earth and we're going to start our story from gaia who began just giving birth to all sorts of beautiful things the hills and the vales and the valleys and everything like that um and just on her own so just mother earth creating by herself um which was actually the theme of a lot of uh of of matriarchal societies that there was a a goddess who could create by herself like the virgin goddess in fact it even makes its way into christianity as mother mary who is the virgin like a virgin goddess who gives birth to jesus christ and so the virgin gaia is just a very generative force and 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 giving giving birth to all sorts of things and eventually she decides that she wants to give birth to a male and that wants to make that male her equal so she gives birth to uranus and uranus she gives birth to uranus to have a mate to have an equal and also to have some protection because she feels vulnerable and and um and like anything from space could just come in and hit her at any time and so she has the covering of the sky for for uranus um which perhaps is is pronounced more like uranus and the word uranus means the heavens crowned in stars isn't that beautiful the heavens crowned in stars and i just want to linger with the beauty of that before i go on to this next part because at this part we have the the sky father and the earth mother in some kind of beautiful harmony you know they're they're working together they know their roles uranus needs to protect and also be beautiful and um and the earth needs to create and also be beautiful so there's beauty at the at the very heart of both of those now I'm going to move into how I learned to say this word Uranus. So the Greeks have this word that means the heavens crowned in stars and it turns into this word Uranus which literally points at your own asshole. <laughs> like what kind of trickster stuff is this, you know? I've always found it one of the hardest planets to talk about because either someone will um overtly snicker and have a joke oh my god uranus you know have that kind of childish joke or it'll just be in the background you can just feel the snickering in the background it's like this this childishness maybe it's the eternal youth element of aquarius coming into this sign to have us to snicker but it's almost like we can't take in the beauty of this word um you know the greeks saw it as a the vault of heaven where um where there was a a sphere basically that sat above the sphere of the earth and th- these two spheres were together and um and in the connection of the two spheres they they were able to generate together and so uranus became the um the sky the the father of all of these creations but yeah i just want to linger there for a moment of of how that may have gotten in our way of really understanding this this planet and really understanding this figure um because there may be something consciously or unconsciously in us that doesn't want to say the words your anus. <laughs> I just had to go there. I just had to explore that because I really feel like it's something that I've I've struggled with, you know, I'd be in a in a conversation about this really amazing intense planet and and everything that like the disruptor planet, the one that can come and just kind of shake things up and and um and then all of the intensity and drama of that but then you get this snickering that takes all of the intensity and drama out so anyway let's move on from there so uranus and gaia they they are in union and they're in harmony and i i want to sort of just hang out with this part of the story you know because i think this is the longing whether it's explicit or implicit whether it's, whether people talk about it or they don't you know the longing for Uranus, which rules over everything that the Sky Father gives us, you know, the, the technology, the ability to to um, to build things and make things, and all forms of technology throughout time, whether that's just like the 
um, the bow and arrow or the uh, the ability to make fire or or the scythe or the um, or the plow or or farming tools or any of these things like it's all technology right and like now nowadays we think of technology um, as as like the tech industry so everything that involves like computers and um, and phones and the cloud and all of these kinds of things which is also a pretty interesting Iranian image um, so but we're thinking about when that that Uranus, that Skyfather, was actually produced by Gaia, the original, and then made equal to Gaia, and then given the task of of protecting protecting her from um, from whatever was the dangerous forces around that could threaten her. And for a while, they do start to produce together the Titans, which are godlike creatures and beings, and um, uh, you know, divine divine beings. Um, they create and create. But there's a sense that nothing's ever good enough for Uranus. It never quite, once it gets created, so once it goes through the earthly um, Gaia realm, it's not as good as the vision that he had for it. Um, so so I just want, you know, I'm sure that as the listener, you're sitting with that going, oh my God, that's, um, that's true of my own experience too, right? Like, oh, this is the, we have that you have that divine image and then when you see it come through whether that's a creative creation or you know a relationship that you desire or something like that you have all these desires and they're very lofty and once they come through into the earthly realm it's like oh you know that's not exactly it that's not that's not as perfect as it was when it was just in my imagination right when it was just up in the sky as the sky father's image and so this is the uh, the conundrum where Uranus's children they just don't up they don't meet up to his uh, his ideals, and he just feels that something's got to be done about it, and so he starts to shove them down into the earth, or we could say shove them back into the womb, right? And so he starts to produce, you know, he produced all these very near perfect beings uh, as the Titans, but next he starts to produce. Uh, the Cyclopses, these big giant figures with these one eyes, and the Hecatonchires um, with a hundred arms and the fifty heads, you know, and he doesn't want—he doesn't like that reflection, and he doesn't like what he's seeing, and so he shoves them back into the earth, shoves them into the earth, doesn't want to let them be seen. So now, where Uranus was originally created. To protect Gaia, he's now injuring Gaia. And I'll just say that again. Where Uranus was originally uh, created by Gaia to protect Gaia, he's now injuring Gaia. And I think that's where we are, you know. That's why I'm actually quite excited about this next phase of Pluto moving into Aquarius because that means Pluto is moving into the realm of Uranus, the realm of the Sky Father. And... Pluto is not itself destructive. It's just a truth serum. It just lets the truth be seen no matter how awful or how hard to see it is. And we all were there um, 20 years ago with uh, Al Gore's The Inconvenient Truth. And um, But Al Gore flew around the world on private jets to, to show people that keynote speech. Um, the really, really inconvenient truth is like, can we really fly around on private jets <laughs> can we really do that is that is that what we would call sustainable that's the really really inconvenient truth and so i wonder what will happen when when pluto who just has a habit of um of revealing uh, reveals some of the things to us in more plain terms where we sort of can't avoid it anymore can we not avoid it anymore though because we can see what happened when pluto went into um capricorn in 2008 and the big crisis, and there was the bailout from the government. Um, you know, so rather than experiencing the consequences of our action, we can just kind of like put it off to a future date. I'm hoping that um, that future date is now, and that uh, there's a there's a way to reckon with some of what is happening on the Earth. And um, and who knows what will happen? You know, that's not for us to know. That's in the future. 
Um, but we can meditate on some of these images and, and kind of come back to like, well, what is the point of Ura- Uranian energy? What is the point of this uh, sky father, you know, this 11th sign of the, of the zodiac? Um, in fact, it may even lead us into a conversation about patriarchy and what we really mean by that term, you know, um, what we really mean by, by that. Because, it, of course, patriarchy means that it's pointing back to the sky father, and the tradition of sky fathers, you know, and we've tried all sorts of things over certainly in, in the years that I've been around. I've seen, you know, men becoming more um, more feminine and all these sorts of attempts of like maybe we could fix it this way or that way. But ultimately, um, you know, we have to acknowledge that that there's a beauty to fathers. You know, I I think that's the real the the element that I want to see. The mythological father is a beautiful thing. In fact. That's why I want to really linger on the fact that Uranus means the the heavens crowned in stars. It's a beautiful image. You know, if we just turn all the lights off, we could see that every night. But funnily enough, Uranus rules those lights. So he blocks his own creations. He blocks his own beauty. Mm. And there we are. So, yeah, I mean, just some words on that, the, that, we've the the discourse is like oh the patriarch is the is what's wrong and god i know what it's what what it's essentially referring to is like yeah the oppression of women and um and the horrors that have happened over the centuries to do with that very thing but i wonder if the word patriarch is 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 not really the word we're looking for and maybe you know i i listened to stephen jenkinson talk about this once of of uh, maybe we need to find a different word for that, for the oppressive energy in the world that sort of crushes um, the feminine and crushes the earth and destroys things, and maybe leave the fathers out of it. <laughs> because the fathers have taken a bit of a beating maybe ever since Homer Simpson, you know, this kind of like dumb, daft um, father that, it, that um, everybody's smarter than. Anyway, there's just a few thoughts around that. So eventually um, we explored this in brief in the last podcast, but eventually Gaia asks her 12 children if anybody will help. Everybody says no except for the 12th child, so the youngest of them who's Cronus, and Cronus is Saturn. And from now on, I'll just call him Saturn because we want him to be that connection to Saturn, which is the ruler of Aquarius, and Uranus the other ruler. So now we have a battle between Uranus and Saturn. Right, because Saturn agrees that he's going to um, become a part of this plot from Gaia to overthrow her husband, the oppressive force of Uranus. And so, the next part of the story, which we've explored in the last podcast, is is that just as as Uranus is coming down to lie upon Gaia at night, um, Saturn pops out of nowhere. He's got the sickle made of adamantium, and he cuts off his crown jewels cuts off his uh, genitals and he throws them out into the ocean now at this point we should make a note of of what actually happens here because some drops of blood fall on the ground and that and from those drops of blood come the furies and also the giants um, the race of giants and the furies is something i want to come back to um, in a little bit but then once the genitals land in the ocean there's a frothing and out of that frothing comes Aphrodite. And she's named Aphrodite because Aphros means froth. And so she's the lady of the froth. She also has several other names, but I won't bog you down with those names. So this is Aphrodite, who was born ultimately out of the genitals of Uranus, which makes her, in a way, uh, Uranus's daughter. And in fact, I did a little bit of digging around this. And, um, and Aphrodite is, is, in fact, in this form named Aphrodite Urania, so Aphrodite of the heavens. And she has a counterpart called Aphrodite Pandemos, um, so Aphrodite of the people. Aphrodite Pandemos is the daughter of Zeus and Dione, who's someone nobody knows much about, but the name suggests like a feminine form of Zeus. So I like to think of that as like Zeus going into a narcissistic frenzy and sort of creating his feminine form, and out of that union between him and his his feminine form 
Aphrodite of the the lustful variety or the earthly variety um you know the one that rules over those earthly desires is uh it's that Aphrodite is born from that which would make sense as well because Zeus certainly has that side of him the uh, erotic side the lustful side but if we come back from that Aphrodite and come to the one that's that I associate now with Aquarius it's Aphrodite Urania which means ultimately an unattainable beauty that's what she is I don't see Aphrodite Urania really mingling with the humans I see her as this figure that's way out there in the ocean so way out there in the depths of our imagination we're not really meant to bring Aphrodite Urania into the physical form she is more like a muse in fact Urania um, was the muse there were nine muses and Urania was the muse of astronomy and astrology so she's more like a muse more like um you know if you think of uh, Don Quixote and how Don Quixote has Dulcinea who's just this unreachable un, un you know the, this woman that he's never going to actually be with but he he dedicates all of his journeys and all of his adventures to Dulcinea it's a little bit like that Aphrodite She's she's otherworldly and she remains otherworldly. So in a way, it comes it brings us back to that original Uranian impulse, or the or perhaps the original Aquarian impulse, which is a utopian vision. Now, that utopian vision, um, just as uranium can turn to lead, that utopian vision. If we look through history, we don't have to look far to see when utopian visions end up becoming dystopian and that's something to again watch for you know we need to we need to weigh as we as as a collective think about the the uranium visions where we might get caught up in that we might get caught by aphrodite urania and be be stuck in this this oh, i know what would, what would need to happen for everything to be perfect on earth and for um, us to be in this beautiful age of everything's great again, <laughs> you know, everything's perfect. Um, that's a very intoxicating image, and it comes through for all of us, no matter which side of the political spectrum we are, um, no matter which sex we are, which gender we are, which whatever we are, we can get drawn into Aphrodite, Aphrodite Urania's uh, intoxicating vision of perfection. But so often, when we go collectively in the in the vision into the vision of perfection, we end up at the opposite end of the spectrum in the dystopia. So it's kind of like yes, I say yes to going towards Aphrodite Urania in a way, but not forgetting that Saturn also rules Aquarius. So we also have to be um, realists about it. We have to create systems that make sense. We have to come back and help the disadvantaged, you know, all those elements. We have to come back and sit with ugliness and sit with things that we don't like to see um, and, and keeping on coming back to that particular energy. Like, where can I be of service to those who need me the most? You know, where can I, where can I give generously of the gifts and the privileges that I've had in my life and, um, and bring it back to people that really need that and i think that's where the aquarian um archetype becomes more well-rounded when it's not just that vision but it's also the action um and the transformation and the attention to detail that the saturn part of that archetype can bring so i did mention the furies so coming back to that these drops of blood and there were many many um furies and uh but they eventually got they eventually came down to just three. And the three Furies are Electo, Megera, and Tisiphone. And basically the, the translation of those, there's a few different translations, but um, one translation could be envious anger, retaliation, and never-endingness. So this, um, this tension between Saturn and Uranus can take us into that sort of thing, like a like when we get into the loops of um of pain and then more retribution and more retribution after that the uh the envy and the the never endingness so you know, interesting to think that on the one hand we have the birth of Aphrodite Urania the most um the most otherworldly beauty imaginable and on the other hand these furies um 
you know, retaliation, never-endingness, the idea that there's a there's a cycle that happens when Saturn and Uranus have their battle with each other that tends to just kind of pass on and on and on down through the lineages. So it's interesting because, you know, in the last couple of years, um, we have had Saturn squaring Uranus in the sky. Uh, so see if you can dream into the time that started around about, um, well, sort of late in 2020, you know, starting around about, you know, late December, December 17th, maybe 2020, and only just now starting to finish up. So all the way through that time, the two were squaring each other, which meant it was a little bit like this battle where one was pulling in one way, the other was pulling the other way. A square is a 90 degree angle. There's not an easy solution to a square in the individual or the collective. Um, the direct hits with this of this were February 17th, 2021, June 15th, 2021, and December 24th, 2021. Um, but even now, as we speak, it's only it's still less than 10 degrees apart. But in March, Saturn will move on, and that will be the end of that square. And so we have this tension, which I've talked about previously in the podcast, but it's interesting now to look back and just how heated things got in the collective things that you weren't allowed to say anymore. And I've really got the sense of, you know, Saturn swallowing his, his children, also Uranus shoving his children back into the earth and, and really creating monsters in that process. Ultimately, Saturn was saying, come on guys, just like get on with this thing. You know, everybody do the right thing for Aquarius, which is the collective. Um, just do what needs to be done so that we can get out of this. And Uranus saying, come on guys, like wake up, this is this thing that's happening with your body is not okay, everybody has the freedom to choose what they want to happen to their own individual body. And I'll let you guys think about how that played out in your own personal world, um, but we can all see how that played out in the collective. And so, you know, the battle, ultimately, a couple of things can happen out of that, and as, as per the mythology, we can either just stay, get, stay stuck in never-endingness, retaliation, and anger. We can get we can get into that and, and be stuck and, and want retaliation, right? I think that's especially and the never-endingness. We're just going to keep um, trying to fight that force, keep fighting it. Or ultimately, we can also see the other possibility, which is that there's more beauty, more understanding, more more ability for the Saturn side of the equation to see Uranus and say, actually, you were quite right about some things and the Uranus to see Saturn and say, yeah, you were quite right about some things too. And also you were quite wrong about some things. And so kind of like bringing into the, into the healthy debates and the healthy tension where the magical third thing can happen, that magical third thing um, could be that Aphrodite Urania energy where we have sort of like more truth, more beauty, um, more ability to see the clarity of what's going on but also it can always go the other way and there's always potential for both where it's, again, just cycling through more and more of the furies. Okay, and so then that brings us closer to present day and where we're at. Um, and, and as I said before, Saturn's leaving Aquarius and Pluto's going to enter. Um, have a bit of a think about that, about what what that might be about, you know, give yourself some time to to meditate on that one of the things i've thought about with pluto entering aquarius is we have this story of ganymede right it's an abduction and it's a it's being taken up into the heavens or into the top of mount olympus so the consciousness is taken up that also you know really feels to me like these technologies and um and these these where is our consciousness going when we're staring into these square screens, right? When we're scrolling through Instagram, um, when we're in a YouTube spiral, um, heading off into the to the great abyss, right? What's happening to our consciousness? It's a little bit like that. Our consciousness is being taken and abducted up into the cloud. Um, what's happening when we make a, a figure and we head off into the metaverse and we spend the next few days there? What's going on there? You know, what's the body doing while that's happening to the consciousness? So I do think it's a really good um, story, even though it's just a brief one. It's a good one to give some thought to and give some meditation to. Now, what's going to happen when Pluto 
god of the underworld, who's famous for um, coming up and snatching Persephone and taking her down. So he's also uh, famous for an abduction, right? He's famous for coming up from the underworld, snatching Persephone and taking her down into this deep, dark process of the dark night of the soul. Obviously, we, we can see the tension in this, right? Aquarian energy is trying to take us up and Pluto energy is trying to take us down, trying to take us down into the underworld, trying to take us down into deep um, metamorphoses processes that can only really happen down there, way down there in the underworld space away from all of those eyes. So what will happen? That's a, that's a question that I leave for us. We'll find out as we go. We've got plenty of time. Um, Pluto's going to be in Aquarius for 20 years, so 20 plus years. So we have plenty of time to find out. But maybe think about your own um, placements in Aquarius if you know your chart. Um, if you don't know your chart, just imagine, I wonder where what in me is Aquarian? Because we all have all 12 of signs of the zodiac in us. It's not a case of like, well, that person's Aquarian and I'm not at all. That's not even possible. So which parts of me are going to be, you know, like going through this um, when Pluto comes along? Parts that may have been a bit lofty and a bit idealist, parts that may have been dissociated or, or disconnected, um, or even, you know, on the positive side, parts that um, parts that are visionary and that have have vision for a future and and a, a way of being with the planet that is sustainable and and full of growth and harmonizing and and birth of more um, Aphrodite beauty energy. What's going to happen to those energies as Pluto comes along and um, and slowly does its deep, deep, slow process over those? What does it mean for something that's already been abducted and taken into the upper world to suddenly be taken down into some deep, dark places? I want to make sure right now that as you're listening, you're um, tracking that there may be some good versus evil, heaven and hell themes just kind of like bubbling around in the deep consciousness and the in the in the unconscious and the subconscious because you know we've just had almost 2000 years you know i kind of count count in the west christianity's rise to be more like the 4th century ad we've had a long time of this idea that there's this ultimate good guy and this ultimate bad guy which i just think is bad mythology guys i'm sorry i just that's just what i see I'm, i had a catholic upbringing and um and some of it i really um i really enjoy i i, I liked a lot of the ceremony and the ritual and it, it helped me in, in enormous ways and and i had i met beautiful people through the church um but the mythology is a little off when it comes to the good and evil thing um what i love about the greeks is that they just don't have that hades is an evil he's just ruling over the underworld and uh uranus is the heavens and he does bad shit, right? He does some bad stuff. Um, so it's not so cut and dry. It's much more nuanced. And so I just want to make sure that we're not getting caught in any way in that um, the paradigm of, of the upper world and the underworld being the good world and the bad world. In fact, beautiful things can happen in the underworld and devastating things can happen in the, in the overworld, in the upper world. So... That's it, guys. I think I've left you plenty to ponder today. Um, you know, just on that note, uh, there's a line in a Gorillaz song that I really love. It's in a song that, towards the very end of the album Demon Days. And the line is, don't get lost in heaven. They got locks on the gate. So I'll leave you with that um, pondering and that, that um, you know, especially don't get lost in heaven when Pluto's coming into heaven, right? He's coming to make things real, coming to get things get things back in order. Um, so yeah, uh, thanks a lot for listening in. You know what to do if you want to partake in the in the podcast a little more. Get onto the Instagram or have a look at the website or head over to Patreon and sign up there. <laughs>